Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of a Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. My name is Mike Delisio, and I am joined with Sebastian Dennison, as always. Hey, Seb, how's it going? Uh, it's good to be back, man. We're we're we've got a special guest today. I am. It's. I think people are starting to get into this competition idea of who's going to make the most appearances, and so uh, this is one of my favorite guests right here. Someone told me that I wasn't allowed to have favorites, but I think he might be my favorite. Um, oh, nice. And not necessarily because of the knowledge bombs and uh, the amount of information he can just dump on a forty-minute podcast. But uh, a lot of the fact is that he makes us laugh throughout our outtakes before and after, um, as well as during. So with that being said, I I couldn't introduce you any better, Gus, but our chief scientific officer here at PCCA, Gus Bassani, welcome back for episode. Yeah, this is your third episode, Gus. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's hey, it's great to be here. It's always an honor to talk to you guys and like. Like Mike said, it's always a lot of fun. Uh, unfortunately, the listeners don't get to. No. Maybe one of these days we'll put together some outtakes. We have a good time getting getting set up on these calls. So uh, great to be here. Well, it's it's great to have you back. And I, I mentioned this is the third installment of of you being a guest on the podcast. The first two times, once you had the ability to kind of jump in to talk about our innovation and what PCCA's innovation was all about, and then obviously a very special episode relating to cannabidiol, where you and Sebastian talked about the endocannabinoid system and the importance of us selling cannabidiol as an API. Today, we're going to go back into the world, and I'll call it the world of active pharmaceutical ingredient and bulk drug substance as to, you know, what it means to a pharmacy, um, how it applies to 503A. There's going to be a lot to uncover. um, And I want to make sure that our listeners follow a path and a journey that's important for them as well to get a better understanding of what a drug substance is when it comes into our facility. And even before that point, when we make the decision to buy from who we buy from, and we've always called it the PCCA standard. And, you know, no two processes are the same. No two drug uh, repackaging companies follow the same protocols. And a lot of it is now brought into more of the attention of the FDA as well, understanding that, you know, there's, you can do this one way, you can do this a variety of ways to ensure the quality of the product being used in the compounded medication. So I probably have not done it justice. We'll, we'll try to unpack it the best way we can. What, what's the best or the initial starting point message that you can give kind of tailing into what I just mentioned as well? No, I th- actually, I, I think you did a pretty good job teeing up the conversation, Mike. Um, the, the bottom line is, is well, let me back up one second. Why, the, really, the question is, why are we talking about raw materials? Why are we talking about the supply chain? And, and what, why does that warrant a whole blog, or not a blog, but a, a podcast in and of itself? Uh, the reason is, is, is quite simple, and, and that is that the quality of the raw materials that you use as compounders in, to make your preparations is uh, critical. And don't, don't just take it from me. Uh, take it from the marketplace, take it from the Food and Drug Administration. FDA put out a communication 
gosh, it's, it's, it's probably been about a year, two years ago that they, they did this. But if you go to the FDA website, they still have it online. And it was entitled simply FDA to compounders, uh, know your bulk supplier. And, and they're, they're, they're very concerned about the quality of the bulk ingredients that are used in compounding. And as we get along in this podcast, we're going to get into some of the specific reasons why that is the case. The little things, the little things can be a really big deal. Um, and, and, and I think that's, I think that's, that's why the FDA came out with that statement. And also they realize that there are gaps in the system, gaps that can lead to uh, potential issues. And, uh, and we'll highlight some of that in, in our, in our, uh, in our podcast today. But I, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's a, that's a good baseline. And, you know, to, to add on to that, let, I, I think it might be, important to just just for the listeners as a reminder what does federal law require of a bulk drug substance and require of the excipients used in in compounding well section 503a of the food drug and cosmetic act requires active pharmaceutical ingredients and excipients or actually just let's just start with bulk drug substances so the active pharmaceutical ingredients used in compounding to be manufactured by an FDA registered facility. And it must be accompanied by a valid certificate of analysis for, for each of the bulk drug substances. And also the bulk drug substances used in compounding must be either already within an FDA approved product as an active, uh, have a USP or NF monograph, or be on the list that we call the positive list, uh, generated by, by the FDA. Now, there's a number of substances that have been nominated to be, a, to be on that list. And so the, the, the agency has, uh, many of the listeners probably are aware of this, but they have, they have broken the, those nominations into three different lists. List one, list two, and list three. List one is, hey, these were nominated with sufficient information for us to consider. And until such time we make a decision, you guys can continue to compound with things on list one. List two is can't touch it. It's, it's, uh, it's dangerous. So, you know, we, we have some serious safety concerns that cannot be used in compounding. List three is, is items that were nominated without sufficient information for them to consider. They really don't know what to do with those things. And so they've said you can't really use those either. Um, but uh, so list one or the positive list is the other requirement. So for other ingredients used in compounding, it needs to be, they need to be compliant with the standards of the United States Pharmacopeia or National Formula or USPNF if a monograph exists. If, if, if it doesn't, then, you know, of course, you don't, you don't have to worry about that requirement. But if there is a monograph for an excipient, then it, according to federal law, you have to, uh, uh, use it an ingredient that complies with that, with, that, with that monograph. So that's a quick review of what 503A requires of uh, bulk drug substances and excipients that are used in compounding. And uh, as we go along here, we'll get into where, where, where problems can start to, to unfold and where the gaps are. So I, I'm gonna jump in because you kind of uncovered probably the biggest question we get in consulting, we get the biggest question here at PCCA. And I'm going to take the position of a pharmacist that I came through pharmacy school 
And we are told the chemical is the chemical is the chemical. Once it's got that structure, that's it. That's all it is. USP is USP, US is USP. And then we get into the whole brand substitution versus generic substitution. And so I'm going to take the very simple, low-lying fruit questions, like right out of, but it's all the same, Gus. Like you're, you're, you're telling me that there's differences. And, and I'm, because that's our education states, you can do brand substitution for generics because they're exactly the same. Is that the case in compounding? Can we just, because that's, that's the point of this entire discussion. Yeah. So I'm setting it up. No, that, that's, that's, that's great, Seb. Um, uh, and you, you, you hit it on the head. And, uh, and I think, you know, we're all pharmacists here. And I, I, can, I can tell you as a pharmacist, I too had that mindset. And I think that stems from this bioequivalence line of thinking that the brand versus generic, a, a, a generic is AB rated to the brand. It's, 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 it's shown to be bioequivalent and you, you, can, you can substitute. And so well, I think we as pharmacists tend to think that way. And if, and if a chemical has a particular uh, you know, moniker like a USPNF designation, then we should be able to, to substitute uh, with, without really even thinking about it. And, and the answer to that is maybe, maybe not. And, and here's, and, and we can get into all these, these subtleties, but you cannot use the bioequivalence line of thinking as a, when, when, when thinking about raw materials, because remember with brand versus generic, these are finished products that have been approved by the FDA. Uh, they have, when they file their NDAs, the, every ingredient in there, the manufacturing process used to make that product, it's all part of that NDA. Those are part of the approval. Uh, the chemistry manufacturing controls section of that, of that ANDA is, is thoroughly looked at. And manufacturers cannot uh, substitute ingredients without significant vetting application, you know, the, you know, amendments to the application, that kind of thing, because it, it, it's the, as we will get into, there are little things that can matter a lot as, as it relates to the physical chemical stability of formulations. Um, and, and, and so if, if, we, if we back up one step and just think about, okay, so what does the law require? And where, where can things fall apart? Um, one is, remember, the law requires that bulk drug substances are manufactured by an FDA-registered manufacturer. That's, that's, that's the rule. That's in statute. So where the issue is, is that I can literally go online today, spend about 10 minutes getting myself registered as an, as a, as an API manufacturer, and start selling product without ever actually being inspected by the FDA. So there's a time period where there's risk because anybody can register and until a regulator gets in there and, and, and looks at you, you, know, you have no idea if that entity is, is actually even compliant. You know, what kind of environment are these things being made in? Uh, do they follow CGMP? Um, you know, these, these are, this is, this is a significant issue that, that can occur. And, you know, maybe the product doesn't even actually, you know, conform to pharmacopoeial standards. So, uh, you know, and one of our, as, as we'll talk about, one of our standards as a company is that we, we will only do business with manufacturers that have actually been inspected by the FDA or another recognized 
uh, entity like Health Canada or you know, the European Union, um, and et cetera, that, uh, that, that, that we know do a good job in their inspections. And, and within the past three years. So uh, that's an important thing. I, it's also important to understand that you know, a USP or NF chemical uh, may not necessarily be made by an FDA registered manufacturer. Okay, uh, I can I can make something USP or NF, but not necessarily make it in, in a CGMP environment uh, or be registered with the FDA. And so sometimes things can slip through the cracks in the supply chain, and the environment in, in which a chemical is made is important because we worry about impurities and, and things of that nature. Um, at PCCA, I will say that if you see on the label for our, our, our chemical, for prescription compounding RX only, uh, that means it, it fully meets the requirements of 503A as a bulk drug substance. So it, it is made by an FDA registered manufacturer. Uh, it has, by someone who's been inspected recently, um, fully CGMP and has all the requirements as, as, as an API. So that's something to look at, you know, for, as for pharmacists, if, if, that, if our label states that, then you know it fully complies with uh, 503A. And um, the, other, the other thing is, is we have, to, we have to recognize that certain excipients don't, uh, may not necessarily be appropriate for certain dosage forms. I use the example of Benzyl alcohol, which is a, a, a preservative that we will sometimes use, and it can be used parentally in, in, in injectable products. Well, there is actually a parenteral grade. You know, you, you'll see more and more of these types of excipients that have higher purity standards and they're meant for parenteral use coming into the marketplace. You know, as, as, and, and, you know, there, there's not a ton of these out there yet, but if you go to the monograph for benzyl peroxide, there is a subsection of that monograph in USP that says if it's being used for parenteral use, it must comply with these more stringent standards. So sometimes excipients may have more stringent standards depending on how they are used. And um, so that's a real quick glimpse into where some some issues can occur. And I think that's a big reason why the FDA came out with their statements, because they realize that there are gaps in the system that can be taken advantage of and potentially lead to um, bulk drug substances or excipients used in, in, in preparations that may not uh, be as, as a high enough quality uh, for, for, for patient safety. So that's where that, that stems from. And so I guess this is where that document came from the FDA that you need to know your bulk substance provider because they're also the ones who have to be responsible for the acquisition and the vetting of the products that they're, they're actually purchasing from all of these different manufacturers. And so effectively, even the supplier is almost working as a, it's kind of almost a manufacturer because they're actually manipulating those products as well. And I think you were discussing that a little bit earlier is our facility, PCCA, does have requirements that we have to conform to because we're looked at by the FDA as well. Absolutely. So we are an FDA registered CGMP facility. We've, we have been inspected. Uh, pleased to say that those inspections have gone very well. And, um, you know, it, the just goes to the 
to this important point that the 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 environment in which a product is made and the environment in which it is repackaged is, is important. So many people may not realize that the FDA considers repackaging as a form of manufacturing. They write, when they come in and inspect us, they inspect us just like they would a, an API manufacturer uh, because they understand that when I receive it, uh, the testing that I do on that product is important. The, the, the way I store it is important the cleanliness and then our procedures around cleaning and, and, and pre, you know, preventing cross-contamination is important. Uh, the testing of the repackaged product is, is, is a big deal. Um, and then how eventually it's stored and then all the quality assurance around that and, and shipped and whatnot. These are all really, really critical attributes that, that the FDA will pay attention to. Also, how you know, forward backward traceability, uh, just the systems or our quality system is, is, is something that the FDA always takes a really close look at when they come in. And, you know, um, and in terms of uh, the kind of going back to the, the bioequivalence line of thinking that we were just speaking about, um, I, I meant to, to throw in there that you know, there's there's a term that the USP will use, and that's called functional equivalence. And, and so there are, there are things, there are specifications in a monograph that are not included in the, that, that are, you know, the, the monograph for a, a, a raw material doesn't include all of the, the key, you know, specifications that are important in, a, in, a, in the physical and chemical stability of a formula. And, and, and the USP will actually uh, state that uh, outright in, in a couple different sections. Um, so they, they use the term functional equivalence must be determined before you, before you, uh, before you substitute. Uh, and that's, that's, that's one of the reasons also that, that the pharmaceutical industry, when they look at vendors, of course, there's all the regulatory things that they look at, the processes and, are important, but there's also the, there's critical quality attributes, functional attributes of a chemical that they will evaluate, uh, like particle size and solubility. I throw that around a lot with people. Just those are easy things to, that uh, that commonly we see as issues between two different chemical manufacturers, and um, so it, it's 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 the little things like that 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 lead to just just they're important for a pharmacist to consider when they're, when they're using raw materials. I, th I think what you're trying to get to is like, I think USP has a, this is a minimum standard for qualification of that chemical to be appropriate, but we don't want to necessarily only say that, but it seems like there's a lot more behind it than just these basic properties. Like these are the, 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 the standards, but we can always, do much much better and that's where we see real differences in clinical outcomes for the patients like that that's effectively it as a as a less educated view that we have to we we're trying to convey when i speak to people about this topic um, i can sometimes see it in, in their face or in the tone of their response like okay guys yeah i get what you're saying but you're just trying to sell me your chemical and tell me that your competitors are are, are bad and, 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 I'm, and I want to be very clear, while I, I definitely appreciate, we appreciate 
our customers' business. You know, that's what keeps us alive, keeps us afloat. Um, uh, we want their business. We want to earn their business. But I bring this subject up because I don't think there's a full appreciation for the little things of the supply chain, the subtleties of the supply chain. Uh, I, I say little things in quotes because they're, they're actually big deals that can significantly impact the quality of your preparation and significantly potentially impact the safety of that preparation for your patient. And, and I just want to bring up uh, the, these issues. And this is also why on our formulas, we have what we call the blue box warning, which says, look, if, if we've done all the work on a stability study, uh, we've written this formula using the products that we, that we have uh, in our facility that we have vetted, that, um, that if you change that, then the BUD doesn't apply, you know, the, the, and, and I will get asked a lot about that. Well, why, why is that? Is that just a marketing ploy? No, it's not. There is real science behind that, but don't, but don't take my word for it. I mean, if you, if you look into the USP, and I just mentioned that USP talks about the fact that there are specifications outside of a monograph that make a difference. Uh, so if you go to the very front of the USP, which is general notices, a lot of people don't pay attention to that section, but it's kind of like the, the introduction, if you will. It sets the groundwork, uh, ground rules for, for all of USP. And in general notices 4.1, uh, and, I, and I'll go ahead and read this because I think it's important. And, I, and I've written about this. I've, I've, I've talked about it from stage. So people have heard me say this. But uh, because it says this, because monographs may not provide standards for all relevant characteristics, some official substances may conform to the USP or NF standard, but differ with regard to non-standardized properties that are relevant to their use in specific preparations. To assure substitutability in such instances, users may wish to ascertain functional equivalence or determine such characteristics before use. That sums it up right there. That's in the USP. That's not just Gus talking or our formulations team talking or our sales teams talking. I mean, this is not the point. The point is, is there are scientifically valid reasons for which you need to be thinking about the little things. And in 1059, USP chapter 1059, which is, uh, which is about excipients, it states a similar type statement. It says excipients used in drug products typically are manufactured and supplied in compliance with compendial standards. However, the effects of, of excipient properties on the critical quality attributes of a drug product are unique for each formulation and process and may depend on properties of excipients that are not evaluated in the USP or NF monographs. And again, that's a different way of stating the same thing. And that is that there are, you know, how a product is made, the environment in which it is made, uh, the particle size, uh, the lot to lot uh, solubility variations that, that can occur. The, these all play a role in the function of that, of that chemical in a formula. So, you know, a USP chemical may be substituted for another USP chemical, but there needs to be some evaluation and some testing to, to assure that it's gonna behave the same way. I can't, and, and Seb, you know, you, you take calls all the time 
uh, not to call you out here, but we get these kind of calls. Hey, this, this thing's not working. You know, my formula's not working. And we dig into it. We do our uh, uh, deep analysis of what's going on. And we, you know, and it's like, okay, well, tell me, tell me what ingredient you're using. Where'd you get that from? Well, I got it from so-and-so. Okay, so it didn't come from us. Well, there's, 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 a, there's a chance that your issue is likely due to the fact that you're not using the material that we actually have used when we wrote that, that, that uh, formula. Oh, come on now. I mean, you guys, that, that's not it. I mean, this is, this is progesterone. Well, I, mean, I mean, how can that be any different than your progesterone? And look, I'm using that as an example. But, uh, and then lo and behold, they bring the product in that we, that we use to, to write the formula and suddenly it works. And I can't tell you how many times I hear that occur. Um, it's not 100% of the time that that's the reason, but it's, it's, it's a pretty good percentage. So that's why we have that blue box warning on there. Uh, it, it's not to strong arm people into buying our product. It's, it's because there are actually valid scientific reasons that we put that there. Because um, we only know what we know. And, and we know how we handle, process, vet these, these, these products and where they come from. And uh, so changing it presents some degree of risk that, that it wouldn't work quite the same way. You know, normally, <clears throat> Gus, we would go a layer deeper. Um, and I think for the sake of our listeners, without having, you know, visual representation and, and supporting documents to, to show, it's, it, it does make it hard on a on an audio platform to, to really dive in deeper into this whole subject because there is so much to unpack. I wanna go a bit backwards and, and kind of recap and really focus on a few things. One is the, and this has always been a, an interesting topic to me, and this whole world of vendor qualification, manufacturer assessment, um, supply chain has always been, I would say the most interesting world to me. Uh, after being in this market for over 19 years. One is FDA registration does not equate or is not the same as an FDA inspection, especially in the last three years. There, there is a huge gap. And I think that's where a lot of people have a hard time understanding what that means. That gap between FDA registration and inspection could be, could be a long time. And I'll make yeah, an yeah. estimate, could be five plus years. Yeah, it could. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So yeah. the, the amount of FDA registrations that exist in the world versus the actual ones that have been inspected by either the FDA or by the European Union or someone like Health Canada or other recognized government body or association that doesn't necessarily hand out compliance to GMP. Sometimes they do. Uh, the European Union is known to do that. The FDA does not grant a CGMP compliance. They will inspect your facility and verify whether or not you meet the conditions that a drug substance can be manufactured and then exported back into the United States as well. That is extremely important. And number two to all this, and maybe you can add additional comments is when someone says, you know, it's USP and here's my C of A. Um, that is another tremendous gap because the tests performed on that certificate of analysis um, might be so far away from what is actually being done at the manufacturing level and it could be a simple ID test like melting point just to verify that the manufacturer C of A conforms to the product identification. 
Um, but there's so many other additional layers of testing as well that will uncover any impurities, um, mm -hmm. any concerns with the product itself without even having to do a physical inspection on the facility. So, you know, maybe, maybe some guidance there as well, because a C of A is not a C of A. Um, and the test performed in the C of A uh, could vary. And I think that's important to highlight as well. I think everyone gets so caught up in the fact that a drug carries a USP monograph and the assumption is that it is exactly the same. I think you touched on it extremely well, talking about the physical properties or the organoleptic properties of a, of a bulk drug substance. And, yeah. and I think that's something that we, I think we need to either not repeat, but maybe revisit or reinforce in a, in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you, you brought up some really great points. Uh, you, you, the, the fact that, as you said, it could be many years before an inspector of any type goes into some of these facilities, and which is why we have a standard that it, that manufacturer has to have been looked at by the FDA or another recognized uh, country authority within the past three years. And and not only that, but the, the, those, the, the outcome of those inspections were we're good, okay, um, and and it, but think about just the chain of custody. You know, so starting with where the chemical is made, and the conditions under which it's made, very very important. And and by the way, even in manufactured drugs, we've seen instances where lo and behold, why is this impurity there? You know, the, the most recent, of course, has been the NDMA uh, impurity found in ranitidine and metformin and uh, one of the uh, angiotensin receptor blockers. Like so, Valsartan or, yeah. Yeah, Valsartan, I think. Um, and, and that had to do with interesting, you know, a lot of reasons why these things existed and, and why they pop up over time. And that led to the withdrawal of ranitidine from the marketplace. And this is a drug that's been around for a long period of time. Well, lo and behold, uh, it was, you know, one of the manufacturers of the API found out it, they could make it a much more efficiently and more cheaper by using a different solvent system in the ranitidine. And I think that was one of the reasons why that, that impurity uh, started to, to rear, its, rear its head. And, and, and it was testing that, that, that identified that. Uh, why is that peak there? It shouldn't be there, you know, that kind of stuff. So it, it's, it, I'm not just talking about our world. But just in general, uh, little things, quote unquote, little things can matter a lot. And little things meaning impurities uh, can, can be a big deal. So, okay, so where, where, where a substance is made, under what conditions it is made, uh, is it made in, 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 you know, via good manufacturing practices? Is, 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 is a, a regulatory agency looking at that, that facility? And then what happens from there? You hit, you hit on this a little bit, Mike, and that is, you know, our procedures. So, you know, we, we academically uh, vet uh, manufacturers. We've got boots on the ground as well that will go out and audit facilities. Um, but, okay, so it passes that layer. So then when it gets to the, the repackager or distributor, what do they do with it? What are they doing to verify it is what it is? So we, we perform 20 plus checks on, on, on chemical, every, every lot that comes in our, our, our building, you know? Um, and it's not just little, I'll take a little bit from the top and test it. You know, there are multiple layers that we look at. Uh, identification testing is, is a big deal, not just a, a physical property like, like melting point, but there's 
many tests that are performed to ensure that that product is what it is. Does it have particles in it? Does it, you know, the things that just little things that, that, that will, will raise red flags. Paperwork needs to be right, of course. Um, and then, okay, so that's how you receive it. And you validate that it is what it is, which is a big deal. FDA is very worried about that. They like the fact that, that uh, repackers will, will do a robust amount of testing. But then what about, what are their processes and procedures in repackaging? What is the environment in which it's repackaged? Is there a potential for cross-contamination? How is it stored? So all, I mean, it all adds up in the end to a package of chemical that's gonna eventually go to a pharmacy, which will be used uh, to, to, to make a preparation for a patient. There's lots of places that it's touched. And so that's, that's the motivation behind that, that FDA communication really, when it comes down to it, is know who you're dealing with. These upstart places that come out of nowhere and the offer of chemical at a great price and you never heard of this place before, eh, you know, it's not, doesn't take, it's not, I don't know about you, but I'd be a little bit concerned about that. I mean, they may be great, uh, but you better darn well do your homework um, and, and, and probably do a lot of testing to make sure that it is what it's supposed to be. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that, that answered your question there, Mike. Yeah, I think it does. And it, it it elaborates on the point that there are certain things that are required and there are certain things of going above and beyond. Um, I think the PCCA standard that has been so eloquently expl uh, explained and described on our website really covers, you know, the, the, the 20 plus touch points of, of a product as it makes its way, you know, from not necessarily from the point of entry as to when it enters our facility, but before that even occurs, and we make the decision to buy from who we buy from. You know, 40 years of experience is very hard to, un to match when it comes to knowing, you know, some of the vendors that have repeat sustained quality, uh, lot over lot. And I think that is something that is an intangible that exists um, to us. And that we tried to, we really tried to show that that's where the confidence lies, is that, you know, we, we have that consistency, we have, the knowledge and we have the ability to test within a formula to conform to validation as well, to know that it's also gonna work at the pharmacy. And so you touched on the blue box warning, it's extremely important. There's, there's also additional layers in all this. So we could probably you know, peel the onion, get extremely deep onto you know, what we really do. But the, the additional layer that's always stood out to me is also another level of quality assurance, which is repackaging uh, sorry, testing the repackaged product after the lot has been produced into X amount of bottles to verify once again that the item matches its intended label for its intended use, that we haven't performed any errors in the repackaging process. That, you know, you talked about cross-contamination. Cleaning validation is so important and so big in, in our world because that's the, the one time that the powder is exposed to foreign air and, and how we manage that is extremely critical um, and probably the most critical time that a chemical really you know, enters a larger drum into a smaller packaging container, but then verifying that it is exactly what it is once again is not a required um, FDA or any type of guideline against that. That is just an extra layer of confidence that we apply to make sure that everybody understands that the product that they're buying with a label that is on the container matches the product itself. And I think that provides that additional level of confidence. 
but once again, hits on the fact of what's required versus what's, what's accomplished and what's done. So there's, there's a lot to that. And there's a lot to understand as a pharmacist to know what is just simply required and what is considered going above and beyond. Um, and I think I would add on the other the other piece that we do in the lab in the formulation development lab, uh, you know, working with these these products in formulas and looking at the function of those products, and you know, as an extension of that, the, the stability testing that we've been doing in our Formula Plus program, which is continuing to expand. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of resources consumed. A lot of cost involved in those. But again, it's it, the motivation is to really have a good understanding of, of the physicochemical stability and microbiologic as well uh, of these of these preparations. And we continue to put more and more uh, money and, and time and energy into, into building out those stability studies because we, we know it's important from a regulatory perspective, both state and federal, just to have that kind of data. But but really it, it's about it's about patients. You know, downstairs in our in our warehouse, if you've ever been on a tour, you'll see a big poster that says lives depend on a job well done. It's been there as long as I've been here at this company, which is now 18 years. And uh, I know it's it, it's been there much longer than that. And that 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 that's a big deal to us. You know, and that's that's why we look we, we take the extra time, the extra step, the extra expense, uh, because we really want to do our best to mitigate risk. And it's not just business risk, it's mitigating risk for patients. Uh, now, at the end of the day, uh, you guys out there listening that are making the preparations, you got to do your part, which is, you know, okay, we've given you, we've done our due diligence on the supply chain. Now you got to make the product and do it correctly and, and, and make it, you know, in the right environment and, and all that. Cause that's part of, that's part of the deal too. For, for safety for patients. But but we can do a big part in mitigating risk by just making sure that the quality of the raw materials that, that we are offering uh, out there in the marketplace are of the, of the highest quality possible. You know, Gus, th thanks again for giving, you know, this amazing overview and it's, a, it's an ability for people to tap in to learn more about your experience and what's important to you as well. Um, there is a, a blog that will be released shortly. And I know it's something that, that will be released on our public platform. So any listeners who are also a blog subscriber, they will have access to this article that you have released. And I believe it's coming out in the next couple of weeks. So maybe you can kind of touch on some of the content and, and really your, your mindset when you kind of put this together. Yep, it, it's you're exactly right. Uh, um, it'll be it won't be real long. It's a short blog, and in fact, I think we we probably delved into uh, just the the spirit behind that blog pretty well in this podcast. Uh, but it 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 just is an overview of the very subject matter that we that we went through. Um, why using that bioequivalence line of thinking is not appropriate for raw material substitution that they're two very different things. They're not the same thing. And um, because we're dealing with approved products that have been thoroughly vetted versus raw materials in the marketplace. So you, you just, just there's a level of discernment that, that we as pharmacists need to have when we are selecting uh, bulk drug substances and raw materials. And so I'm just making 
the the marketplace a little bit more aware of those those subtleties, and then also uh, reassuring uh, our customers that we are doing our part uh, to to help mitigate risk and to make sure that the quality of those raw raw materials are the highest as possible. That's that's awesome, Gus. And I know a, a lot of our listeners might also subscribe to the blog and and see our you know weekly or biweekly release of information. So if you are not a subscriber of the blog, I highly encourage you to visit pccarx.com slash blog, um, or you will also see it on our header within our main public site. And all you need to do is enter an email address to be a subscriber. We have over 2000 subscribers. So it's definitely a great way to stay connected and learn more about what's going on. Uh, not necessarily within PCCA, but within the compounding marketplace. And this is a perfect example of that. So Gus, I think people are going to have a hard time believing that you make us laugh and there's so many outtakes because of <laughs> the level of seriousness whenever you do join us. Um, but a lot does go on before, sometimes during and after. Uh, I, I would love to say that this is not going to be your last episode. You'll definitely be back soon. Oh, yeah. Having you on. Yeah, no, it's always a pleasure being here. And I look forward to whatever serious topic you have me back for so we can have some fun beforehand. I think we're going to have to choose a lighter topic for you so people can see the insight into the awesomeness of Gus, <laughs> not yeah. just the serious Gus. If oh, our listeners guys. only knew. No, thanks so much for doing this. And, and thanks for, uh, for giving a lot of education that, you know, sometimes is, is really hard to find. And this is not an easy topic to digest for most. And uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot to unpack. And I think you did a great job doing it within 35, 40 minutes. So thanks again for jumping on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. And thanks again to all of our listeners out there for tuning into this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to the podcast on whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on other platforms that you choose to listen to your podcast episodes, as well as to follow us along on social media, whether it's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Uh, we hope you tune in to the next episode. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back with you soon.